Hello everyone, welcome back to M's Drive-In. I'm your host Emily, bringing you into the exciting world of cinema with some behind-the-scenes facts and everything you need to know about some of the best artists in the business. Today's episode is all about the amazing talents of the Redgrave family, so I hope you all enjoy and let's get right to it. Before we get into objectively analyzing their work, I really want to take a personal moment to tell a few stories about how I discovered them and what their work has meant to me. Because I think artists that have had such a personal impact on an audience often gets tossed to the side. And while being able to look at films in an objective fashion is incredibly important, I think the personal side of the way that the people in film impact an audience or the way that films impact audiences on a subjective level is also a really important topic to talk about. I remember when I was a child, I grew up watching the 90s remake of The Parent Trap and the live-action remake of 101 Dalmatians. And Natasha Richardson was in The Parent Trap and Jolie Richardson was in 101 Dalmatians. And of course, the both of them are sisters and they come from the greatest acting family of all time, or at least one of the greatest families of entertainers of all time. And I had no idea that they were siblings. There are certain actresses in particular that I grew up with that I was just drawn to as a child. Some of these people were like Kathy Moriarty and Casper, Julie Richardson in 101 Dalmatians, Natasha Richardson in The Parent Trap. A lot of these women that have really shaped the way that I think or feel about certain films that I saw growing up as a child. And these two women in particular had a hold on me. I watched The Parent Trap in particular religiously as a child. And that was how I came to discover the sisters. And it wasn't until I got into high school and I started familiarizing myself with the work of James Ivory that I discovered Vanessa Redgrave. And I started to Google her and watch some more of her films and completely just fell in love with her and fell in love with the way that she looked in a movie and her sensitivity, her beauty, her sensuality, it all just came through so magnificently. And then I found out that Natasha Richardson and Jolie Richardson were her children and I thought that it was so cool that I had grown up watching those films that they were in, never really knowing that they were connected to somebody so talented and so beautiful. So one by one I started to discover them. And I really started to get into their work, and I was only 15 or 16 years old at the time. And it was such an eye-opening experience for me, and it was so fun digging through IMDb and finding their filmography, because then I watched movies that Vanessa's parents were in, and then I watched movies that her brother were in and her sister was in, and it was just such a great little rabbit hole to kind of dig through. And then I remember scrolling through Instagram one day, and I saw pictures of her niece, Gemma. But at the time, I didn't know who Gemma was. So I was like, wait a second, who's that? And then I went back and I Googled her and came to find out that she was in a British TV show called Holby City. And I watched her in that. So one by one, I really started to discover their work. And I discovered what they stood for and the kind of rules that they were attached to. And there was just something about the energy that they each brought to what they did as a collective group of people that just so happened to be related to each other that I really was drawn to. The first movie we are going to talk about today is The Browning Version. This movie was written by Terrence Radigan and was directed by Anthony Asquith. 
This movie is about a man named Andrew Cocker Harris, who is played by Michael Redgrave, who was a classics teacher at an English school, who was afflicted with a heart ailment and an unfaithful wife, played by Jean Kent. His interest in his pupils wanes as he looks towards his final days in employment. The themes of this film are personal success and failure, repression and change. According to the article, The Browning Version, written by Jeffrey McNabb for the current magazine on the Criterion Channel, the article states, With his hair slicked back, owlish specks, a stiffly formal manner, and a high-pitched warble to his voice, Michael Redgrave plays Crocker Harris beautifully, conveying both his utter weariness and his self-loathing. Unable to inspire his pupils, he browbeats and bullies them instead. His unhappiness is compounded by a wretched marriage to a wife who openly cheats on him and by his nagging sense that he has thrown his gifts away. As a young man, we learn Crocker Harris was a brilliant classical scholar. He had entered teaching with a sense of passion and idealism both long since dissipated. This quote leads us into our first theme of personal success and failure. Crocker Harris is that type of teacher that finds a lot of success in what he knows personally about the subject that he teaches. But at the same time, he does have trouble relating to his students in a way where they will understand his passion. And because of this trouble of being able to relate to other people, that is what causes him to belittle his students as a means of control. As a teacher, he does consider his classroom to be his quote-unquote domain. And this thought of having to leave his classroom and having to have another teacher come in and teach in this space that he has come to feel comfortable in seems very threatening to him. He does feel threatened by another person coming into his space because he unfortunately has brought a lot of his personal life and a lot of his personal grudges into his work. And that is why he takes a lot of time to belittle his students is because he feels a lot of that tension within himself and it's that internal conflict that drives how he reacts to a lot of his situations outside of his control. And he does let a lot of those troubles dictate the way that he dresses his students and his colleagues. Because at the end of the day, he knows that he is hated and he isn't respected. Because a lot of his students talk behind his back and a lot of his students say things that he knows he wouldn't agree with. But he doesn't really know how to change his ways. And he feels like it's too late to apologize. And he does consider a lot of his teaching habits to be a failure because he wasn't able to really inspire his students the way that he wanted to. The article continues to state, Perhaps Anquith's greatest achievement in the Browning version was to coax and a searing performance out of his lead actor. Redgrave held film acting in a very low regard, but on this occasion we're in no doubt that he is utterly committed to his role. There is no false sentimentality about his playing. He shows us exactly why his character is so hated and feared by his students. Nonetheless, when Crocker Harris is finally able to confront his own shortcomings and acknowledge his utter failure in his chosen profession, there is a catharsis as powerful in its own way as any found in the Greek tragedies that he so admires. The lack of sentimentality that he shows in this movie goes in great regard with his relationship with Taplow. Taplow is one of his students that he tutors outside of his classroom. And when he goes off for tutoring, Crocker Harris is incredibly cold and seems very aloof throughout. You can tell that what their relationship is, is strictly business. And because of this, he is incredibly forward with Tableau. And he's the type of person that lets him know straight away if he's made a mistake in his work. And he isn't afraid 
to hold back from a lot of different criticisms. Tableau, on the other hand, is somebody that really tries to be sentimental when Harris shuts down. When the other students are making fun of him, Tableau tries to give him the benefit of the doubt, because at the end of the day, he is a young boy who is very intuitive and understanding of what Harris is experiencing, and he wants to be able to be somewhat of a comfort to him. It's a perfect example of, oh, if you can't inspire a group of people, at least being able to inspire one student out of a hundred is as much of an impact on something or someone as anything else. And Tableau is that one in a million of that one student that Crocker Harris has impacted, even if he hasn't impacted anybody else. Their relationship also coexists with the theme of repression. When we think of repression, we think of this ability to unconsciously block out painful memories. And Crocker Harris happens to be a character who does define what repression is in this film in particular. He's a person that really doesn't want to identify with the pain and the anxiety that comes with having to uproot a whole entire part of your life. An example of this in the film is when Taplow comes to his house for tutoring. And we can clearly see that Harris is on the verge of a panic attack. When he replies to Taplow, it's very curt, it's very cut off. He's very disassociated from what is going on around him. And he does try desperately to come across as if, quote-unquote, everything is fine and under control while he is in the process of slowly losing control. And throughout this whole entire interaction, Tableau doesn't judge him, even when he is handing Harris his medication to try and help calm himself down. And it's that idea of having one person in your life that never stops believing in you, or never stops believing that you are capable of making an impact or doing something so much more for somebody else. And I think that even if Harris doesn't acknowledge the way that Tableau has helped him, he knows that Tableau has helped him. Of course, because of his repressed emotions, he will never outwardly admit to having some type of affection or having some type of sentimentality towards this particular student. But we know that underneath a lot of these layers that Harris has as a person, he does feel that and he does experience that on some kind of emotional level, even if he isn't really able to interpret that outwardly. As an audience, we do see Harris begin to crack a little bit. He does begin to show a little bit more of sentimentality and a little bit more of an awareness of who he wants to be and what he wants to change about himself. And Taplow allows Harris to explore that part of him. I think another really great reason why their relationship is so important in this film is because Taplow is someone who is just so open to whatever direction Harris has to offer. He is a character that is a little bit more chaotic and off the cuff, and because of that he is somebody who craves any type of direction and structure. And even if Harris is more strict in giving whatever he expects, Taplow is still willing to take that in and really absorb that in order to be a good student. Change is another really prominent theme in this movie. The overall story is such a great representation of how hard change can be. Because we see that Harris has become very comfortable in knowing what he does day in and day out as an educator. 
even if his students don't appreciate him for what he does, he still feels very at home knowing what he has to do on a day-by-day basis. But in order to be able to accept this huge transition in his life of leaving this school, he has to be able to confront how hard he has been on his students and how unfairly he has treated the people around him. And that is a huge part of what the ending of this film represents. It's the power of forgiveness. Harris does acknowledge that he could have done things better and asks his students to forgive him. And by this ability of asking for forgiveness and accepting change, he is able to promote Taplow to a class he has always wanted to attend. And in that way, he's really able to let Taplow know that he has done a good job as a student and he's very proud of the work that Taplow has done, even if he doesn't say that explicitly. And it's this marking of the end of a chapter and the beginning of an unknown part of somebody's life. Even though Michael Redgrave was primarily a theater actor, I think this film really did an amazing job of showcasing his talent as a film actor as well, or just an actor in general. Because he was really able to channel a lot of the inner anxieties and a lot of the inner conflicts of this character in a very versatile, complex way. You never really know what he's going to say next or how he's going to react, even if you have a broad idea of the way that his anxiety comes into form. It's still almost surprising hearing a lot of the dialogue that comes out of his mouth because you would never expect somebody that seems so closed off to be so outspoken about what he expects. And that leaves for a lot of surprise when we come to find out that even if he isn't outwardly affectionate, he does find some sentimentality in the work that he has done with Taplow and with being able to forgive a lot of the people in his life. Next up we have the film Georgie Girl. This movie was written by Margaret Forrester and Peter Nichols and was directed by Silvio Narazano. This movie is about Georgiana, who is played by Lynn Redgrave, who is a carefree and childlike 22-year-old who finds more joy in her relationships with children than with the adults in her life. Her parents' employer, James Lemington, who is played by James Basin, proposes marriage, but Georgie avoids giving him an answer as the idea of romance confuses her. When Georgie finds herself the caretaker of her roommate Meredith, played by Charlotte Rampling's child, she seeks to find a way to shoulder the new responsibility while maintaining her childlike innocence. The themes of this movie are responsibility, privilege, pessimism, and hedonism. We can't really talk about Georgie Girl without talking about the swing 60s era. This era of history was a youth-driven revolution in 1960s London that emphasized a lot of fun-loving self-indulgence. And it was a great flourishing time for art, music, and fashion. And many of the characters in this film are very self-indulged in one way or another. And it wouldn't be fair to talk about this film without pinpointing the way that this era has influenced this film. According to an analysis of the film Georgie Girl written by Linda G. Melvey for the Harvard Crimson, the article states, Georgie Girl is supposed to affect you like that. It's another one of those literal dramas the British are turning out with arch jokes, easily identified London streets, pathetic but not particularly likable characters, and a lot of inexplicable movement that is intended to pass for gaiety. All the rushing around is punctuated with boarded moralisms that are supposed to give the film some depth. 
This quote leads us into our first theme of responsibility, which also coexists with morality. Georgie is a character that has a great innocence to her, which allows her to freely act like a whimsical child. And because of this, she does make a lot of child decisions or just acts like a child in general, which also leads to a lot of manipulation with the people around her. To counteract this personality, we have her roommate Meredith, who is someone who wholeheartedly represents what the swinging 60s is all about. She is a person that is always running off with different men, always on the move, always partying in different situations. And because of this, she is incredibly defiant towards Georgie's attempts at trying to fit in with her crowd. Because of Meredith's self-centered ways, she isn't somebody that is willing to take responsibility for anything, which is why Georgie is the one that does become morally responsible, because in a way, it's what women should do in regards to the time period. Meredith ends up getting pregnant for the third time after having multiple abortions, and she doesn't really want her kid. She's very disinterested in the idea of pregnancy and just tries to avoid the whole conversation in general while Georgie is trying to uplift Meredith and trying to get Meredith excited about the idea of having a child. And because of Meredith's complete disinterest, Georgie takes it upon herself to prepare for the birth of this child. All while she is being pursued by a ton of narcissistic men who are very shallow in their attempts to win Georgie over, especially when you consider James Mason's character. James Mason plays a character who works for Georgie's parents and constantly tries to pursue her as a wife. And it's this idea of this older man who's trying to pursue a younger woman into marriage. And a lot of those social conflicts around what is expected of a relationship or a marriage or just duties that you have as a person at the time, I think that this movie does a really interesting job of pinpointing those issues. Because yes, in a lot of ways it is disgusting when you have older men preying on younger women and the possibility of not wanting a child can be a very tragic thing. But I think considering that this movie was made in the 60s, it was a very integral part in the way that abortion was brought up and in the way that a strong male presence or a strong male priority could really affect the status of women at the time. According to the article, Georgie Girl is no feminist statement written by Mark Fraser for Top 10 Films. The article states, Perhaps, however, it's also arguable that much of the movie's intrigue stems from the fact that its outlook is decidedly brutal. No one in the film, for instance, seems to have a particularly strong moral compass. Furthermore, at the end of its cinematic day, swinging London is portrayed as a dead end, a place where wanton hedonism may be commonplace, but the privileged class still gets what it wants so long as it's willing to pay for the price. This quote leads us into our theme of privilege and pessimism. Meredith is the type of person that feels that she is too good to be a mother. And because of this, we can clearly see that she does not have any maternal instincts and just feels overall disgusted by the idea of having a child. And because of this, she does consider putting her baby up for adoption before Georgie decides to adopt her. It's clear that she is 
only interested in anything that benefits herself. She's not interested in being friends with anyone or starting a family. She is a person that always wants to run off and have a good time and is essentially indulged by looking good in a culture that feeds off of her pessimism. And her pessimism does come from this idea that she doesn't want to be around her kid. In a lot of ways, despite Meredith's attitude, it is very easy to sympathize with her because she doesn't want to be tied down by that kind of responsibility. She wants to be a free spirit and she wants to really enjoy her life. But at the same time, the way that she goes about treating the people around her and really discussing the kind of priorities that she wants out of life, she does it in a not so nice way and it's not very kind the way that she goes about doing this. And I think that's the reason why, as an audience, it's easier to root for Georgie because Georgie is flawed. She does a lot of manipulative things in the way that she goes about inserting herself into Meredith's life and the way that she goes about struggling with this naivete that she has about romance. But she does it in a very childlike way to where she's innocent enough to want to be rooted for. When watching this film, you can easily say that none of the characters in this movie are redeemable or worth rooting for in any type of way, shape, or form. But if we're looking at an overall film about flawed characters objectively, it's also really easy to say that you can root for a flawed human being because at the end of the day, nobody's perfect and we all have flaws and we all have ways of dealing with those flaws or interpreting our insecurities in some way, shape, or form. And that is what movies are about. They are a representation of humanity and the flaws that come with humanity. And I think that this film does a really excellent job of representing the era of self-indulgence and the era of going out and wanting to be able to have a good time and not being tied down because you have other priorities. Even if those priorities aren't exactly good, they're still a really important priority or they may still be a really important priority to somebody else. And that is a huge part of what the ending of this film represents. This movie does a really great and job of reinforcing hedonism. And when we think about hedonism, we do think about this idea of self-indulgence. Georgie does end up settling for a shallow marriage to her employer, but is more interested in Meredith's child that she decides to become a mother to. And the movie does a really great job of tying up those loose ends of how each character is able to adapt to their situation strictly out of privilege and out of self-indulgence. They are aware, or maybe somewhat aware, that what they are going into will not work out in their favor, but they give in to the ways of being able to adapt to cultural norms rather than what they truly want. I think another really important aspect of this film that we should point out is that Vanessa was always the most famous out of her siblings. And I think that this film really did an amazing job of showcasing Lynn's talent as an actress. Vanessa actually turned down the role of this film and suggested her sister to play this part. And I really couldn't think of anybody better to play this part because Vanessa was known more for taking on dramatic roles and Lynn was always known 
as somebody who took on a lot of more whimsical characters and a lot of more whimsical roles. And I think that this character in particular was a defining character and it was a defining career move for her because she really embodied what it meant to be this childlike, whimsical person in an era that really thrived on the idea of just having a good time. Next up, we have the film Julia. This movie was written by Alvin Sargent and was based on the story by Lillian Hellman and was directed by Fred Zinnemann. This movie is about playwright Lillian Hellman, who is played by Jane Fonda, at the behest of her old and dear friend Julia, played by Vanessa Redgrave, undertakes a dangerous mission to smuggle funds into Nazi Germany. The themes of this movie are anti-fascism, friendship, art, and theater. According to the article, a graceful, faithful, ephemeral Julia from Lillian Hellman's Pentimento, a sentimental memoir of a girlhood friend, written by Gary Arnold for the Washington Post. The article states, The filmmakers are astute enough to perceive some of her emotional turmoil underlying Hellman's idealized view of the improbable, brilliant, noble, saintly Julia. They also seem to suspect that the inferiority felt and difference shown by Hellman in her relationship with Julia, her adolescent idol and mentor, set a pattern repeated in her relationship with Dashiell Hammett. This quote leads us into our first theme of anti-fascism. Fascism is considered to be a political system headed by a dictator in which the government controls business and labor and opposition which is not permitted. Julia, in the context of this film, has always stood up for this cause and has been an outspoken activist condemning fascism as a whole. And Lillian's role in this fascist world that Julia has come upon herself to be an advocate for follows along with this ideology incredibly blindly. She knows that Julia is a way for an important cause, but doesn't fully grasp the significance of what she is fighting for. Therefore, there is a lot of naive energy coming off of Lillian, which influences her inferiority. Another really important aspect of this film is the way that the movie discusses the difficulties of being a writer. Lillian, as a writer, wants to write something important and meaningful. And her relationship with her friend Dash is very tumultuous in that regard because he pushes her to reconsider everything that she puts down on paper until the story is able to come off the page and really make an impact. At the beginning of the film, it is very easy to get an idea that Lillian is writing for the sake of just writing and her approach to storytelling is more like word vomit on a page. She's just writing for the initial point of being able to get a reaction out of an audience without really writing in order to be able to tell a story or to say something significant about something important in her life. And Dash is the person that really pushes her to be able to take that plunge and really write something that has had a really great impact. The only problem is she doesn't really have anything in her life that solidifies what she is able to bring to the table as a writer, who she is able to really inspire as an artist. But then when Julia asserts herself into the picture and lets Lily know that she needs her help in this cause of fighting against fascism, 
that is when Lillian really starts to take the reins and realizes that she can use a huge part of her relationship with Julia to really influence the way that she goes about telling a significant story. The article continues to state, Jane Fonda's intriguing 10-step performance as Hellman corroborates the impression, irritable intent, and agonizing self-conscious. Fonda suggests the internal conflicts gnawing at a talented woman who craves the self-assurance, resolve, and wisdom she sees in figures like Julia and Hammett, portrayed by Vanessa Redgrave and Jason Robards. This quote leads us into the theme of friendship. Julia happens to be the embodiment of everything that Lillian wants to be. Julia is confident, self-assured, and knows what she wants to go after. And there's really no second guessing about who she wants to affiliate herself with or the way that she wants to go about living her life because she structures her existence in a way that is solely focused on her empowerment and her belief in what she is passionate about. And by Julia recruiting Lillian to help her with their activism work, that is what gives Lillian the chance to finally make something of herself. Lillian finally feels like she's good for something. And we as an audience can clearly see that the film is addressing the question of could this activism work be the most important moment that Lillian was meant to write about? Julia's friendship to Lillian affects Lillian in incredible, subtle ways. Lillian is a person that idolizes Julia to a degree that she will do anything for her, even if she doesn't always know exactly what she's getting herself into. And throughout this process of trying to smuggle funds to Germany, Julia subtly sends people Lillian's way to help her complete her mission throughout the film. The movie itself dives into a lot of flashbacks of Lillian and Julia throughout their childhood and their friendship and how powerful they were together as a two-person team because that's what they really were throughout their lives. And throughout their adulthood, we don't really see them a lot together because Julia is away for much of the film. But at the same time, there is this sense of connection and there is a sense of comfort knowing that they are always in each other's corners in one way or another. The film also focuses a lot on the idea of female empowerment. Julia is considered to be a great, powerful, outspoken figure. And Lillian is the complete opposite of that. She is someone who consistently listens to her insecurities and often lets her self-doubt drive her to never really feeling fulfilled or completely satisfied with her work as a writer. And Julia is the person that really does empower Lillian to continue to write and finish everything that she starts. And she awakens a great passionate spirit in Lillian to really finish her tasks and to really dive into what she knows and what she is familiar with and be able to really give back to society and do so in a way that inspires other people through the idea of being an artist. And that is where the theme of art and theater comes in. They both bond over music and plays, and Lillian does grow up to obviously become a playwright. And their friendship as children does help Lillian creatively, because Lillian was really able to dive into those intense, intriguing, eye-opening experiences that she had with Julia, and she was able to take that and use that as a leverage to 
put that back out into the world. At the end of the day, when we do think about writing and we do think about storytelling, a huge bulk of that comes from our experiences. Stories come from life experiences. And Lillian is a great example of a character that uses those experiences through her art as a great way to be able to keep Julia's spirit alive. And that is a huge part of what the film ending represents. Julia ends up basically risking her life for this cause of fascism because she didn't believe in a political system dictating a society. And at the same time, Lillian didn't realize the full extent of what Julia was fighting for or her part of it, even if she was trying to help. And it creates a really bittersweet conflict in the film. Because on one hand, you have this great sense of disappointment and this great sense of loss for Lillian because she really wanted to be there for Julia and she really wanted to help her best friend who really felt like a mentor and a sister and somebody really important to her in her life. And she finally felt like she was doing something good for herself and for the world and for society and she had something to give back for. But on the other hand, it didn't work out and plans fell through and relationships fall flat. But at the same time, she can't really let go of that friendship that they had together. And it's that significance of how one person and one cause could really have the ability to significantly impact somebody else and could really significantly impact the future of a society. But it also has a really great impact in the way that we choose to share our life experiences and the way that we choose to use storytelling as a really great tool to emphasize the importance of social issues and social causes and the importance of fighting back and doing what you can to really make a change in the world. When Vanessa Redgrave won her Oscar for this film, she said that this was the best work that her and Jane could have done. And on some level, I do agree with her. Because when we talk about films that highlight certain social issues, we come to realize that movies aren't just about entertainment, that they do have the power to really impact society, and they do have the power to really change the way an audience is able to think and the way that an audience is able to feel. And I think this is definitely one of those films that plants a seed in somebody's mind of being able to really stand up against a society and against a dictatorship and how important it is to think as an individual and as a free spirit rather than being controlled by a certain dictatorship. Now moving on to some fun facts. For the Browning version, in 1993, director Mike Figgis was dressing for a dinner party at the home of Ridley Scott's producer and happened to switch on this version of the Terrence Radigan play. He became so riveted that he arrived late to the party. He explained to his host the reason for his tardiness. His host said that coincidentally, he himself had recently optioned the remake rights and was looking for a director. Figgis went on to direct the 1994 remake with Albert Finney. Michael Redgrave was 43 when he made the film, the exact age that Crocker Harris was supposed to be. Terrence Radigan's original one-act play ended with Crocker Harris telling the headmaster that he wished to speak last at the closing ceremony. His apologetic speech to the students was written by Radigan especially for the screen. For Georgie Girl 
Lynn Redgrave's Best Actress Oscar nomination for this movie coincided with Sister Vanessa's similar nomination for Morgan. Such a coincidence had occurred only once before when sisters Joan Fontaine and Olivia de Havilland respectively vied for the Best Actress Oscar for Suspension and Hold Back the Dawn. Fontaine was the only winner of the four actresses in this particular curiosity. Lynn Redgrave said of this movie in Sheridan Morley's biographical book, James Mason, Odd Man Out, I couldn't have had a better start than with James. From the very first day on the set, he treated me as an equal, never patronizing, but always ready with advice and encouragement if you seem to need it. They kept pulling the plug on the film because they said that James and I and Sir Alan Bates didn't add up to much at the box office. But in the end, we got it made because of James's enthusiasm for the quirkiness of the story and the chance it gave him to go back to his Yorkshire accent. He took very little money for it, and we all thought it was just going to be a low-budget release. So when it became such a huge success, it was all the more lovely for those of us who always had faith in it. James made me feel that if I tried to do anything, even sing that song, and he told me always to close my eyes just before the camera started to roll. First, because it would help to concentrate my mind on the scene, and second, it would make my pupils look bigger and better. I've always remembered to do that. This film was nominated for four Oscars. Lynn Redgrave for Actress in a Leading Role, James Mason for Best Actor in a Supporting Role, and Tim Springfield and Jim Dale for Best Original Song. For Julia... The shadowy person sitting in the fishing boat at the beginning and end of the film is actually Lillian Hellman. Jane Fonda did the voiceover. When Jason Robards failed to appear at the 1978 Oscar ceremony, host Bob Hope quipped that he must be off playing poker with George C. Scott and Marlon Brando, who both famously had rejected their Oscars in the early 1970s. Fred Zinnemann originally wanted an American actress to play Julia, but having worked with Vanessa Redgrave ten years earlier on A Man for All Seasons, he knew she was right for the part. Now moving on to some movie recommendations. First up we have Gene Simmons and The Happy Ending. This movie was released in the late 1960s and was directed by her husband at the time, Richard Brooks, and is one of the most heartbreaking but incredible films that I have seen this year. Whenever I watch Gene Simmons in any film, I am always so taken aback by not only her beauty, but her ability to completely inhabit a lot of really insecure, self-loathing, doubtful people. And she does it in a way that just sucks you in as an audience member, and this film was no exception. She plays a housewife who is deeply unsatisfied with her marriage, and a lot of the anxiety and a lot of the disconnect is incredibly palpable in this film. You can feel the stress, you can feel the tension, and it just radiates and bounces off of the actors in really intricate ways. And she was just absolutely incredible in the role, and I was so happy that she was nominated. Even though she didn't win, she definitely deserved the recognition in and of itself. Next up, we have the new Disney Pixar movie, Lightyear. I know there's been a lot of talk around this film and how there were a lot of critics and audiences who were deeply unhappy or unsatisfied with the movie itself, but I personally really, really enjoyed it. I think it was really interesting to be able to take that character and create an origin story around the character, but what I liked most about it was it stayed true to a lot of what Disney Pixar does with their films. It stayed true to a lot of the themes that they have been writing about and conceiving for many years throughout 
many of their films and I thought the animation was really really great and just overall being able to sit and enjoy an animated movie is really really nice because once again we often have these films that we like to be able to just sit and watch and enjoy and I love that animation allows us to really dive into those worlds. Next up we have Michael Douglas, Jane Fonda, and Jack Lemmon in The China Syndrome. This film was the very first watch for me and I am so happy and so grateful that I took the time out to see this film because it is another really amazing example of the power of film and what it can do and it is another one of those films that touches upon a really important societal issue and does so in a way where you can really feel once again the anxiety and the tension and the very palpable energy that comes across when you have three great actors in one space together really sharing the space and giving each other moments to really connect as characters and as actors and that kind of chemistry was just amazing to watch. Last but not least we have Marlene Dietrich in the movie Morocco. This movie came out in 1930 and it was such an incredible milestone for cinema because you have Marlene Dietrich coming out in a suit and having a kiss with a woman and for the 30s that was considered to be a really really big deal and she did become somewhat of an icon because of that movie. If anybody out there has seen the film Victor Victoria, which I've talked about on this show, the very first scene of the film we see a picture of Marlene Dietrich in a suit right before we cut to the actual first scene of the film. And it just goes to show the kind of impact that film history can have on future films. And I loved what this movie did with that kind of impact. As our time together comes to an end, I just want to thank everyone for tuning into M's Drive-In. I'm your host, Emily, bringing you into the exciting worlds of cinema with some behind-the-scenes facts and everything you need to know about some of the best artists in the business. Keep an eye out for our next episode on the amazing collaborations between Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward.